0: Uh, what a great morning we've had already Um, if you don't know me my name is Cal my turn he is risen risen. awesome you know I I can honestly say I don't think I'm ever gonna get sick of hearing that I know we only well almost only I think typically but maybe even only do it on Easter Sunday Uh, but it is wonderful just to acknowledge the fact that we here are here to worship and we serve a risen Savior one that is no longer in the grave but one who is alive and well and working in our lives Um, Thank you for those who are joining us online as well, it's great to have you, and it's also uh, a thank you to, for making us a part of your Easter Sunday celebration. Now, so Easter Sunday is obviously a cele- uh, something worth celebrating. In fact, statistically, we know that Easter is one of those times when many who maybe typically wouldn't attend an Easter sur- uh, a Sunday service excuse me, will still come to a church service on Sunday morning. But... You know, there, there's really a lot of holidays, aren't there? A lot of celebrations throughout the year. And I wonder if sometimes Easter just kind of gets lost in it all. I put up a chart up here of all the various celebrations perhaps you could be involved in, depending on your uh, racial background or your religious background, um, those kinds of things. And, and you can see that there's you know, dozens, uh, maybe even a hundred, of different, different celebrations up there. Now, how many celebrations would you say you celebrate every year? Now, there's our birthdays and our anniversaries for those who are married. I know that Michelle's family is quite large. I think there's 50-some when we're all together. And so trying to remember all those birthdays and send out a birthday note is impossible for me. Thank goodness my wife keeps track of those things very closely. But even just those can can fill your calendar very quickly. Then there's the many other celebrations that happen throughout the year. Christmas, of course, comes to mind. Uh, New Year's Eve and then New Year's Day. Perhaps there's some significant celebration that you participate in. A Valentine's Day is maybe something that you, you acknowledge. Uh, St. Patrick's Day, if you're Irish, or if you just enjoy the, the McDonald's green milkshakes. Um, for me, I always we always celebrate a Chinese New Year or try to do something to recognize Chinese New Year. And of course, there's Canada Day and Thanksgiving and Halloween and just recently Family Day. The list goes on and on and on. There's certainly no shortage of things to celebrate. So has Easter kind of just become another celebration for you and your family? Is it another year of another turkey or ham dinner? Another setup for the Easter egg hunt after this service? Is it just buying all the chocolate that you can get your hands on? In fact, buy them tomorrow, because they'll be like 50% off, right, if you're looking for Easter chocolate. I mean, I know we know that Easter is an important holiday, and for those who follow Christ... It is probably not even arguably the most important holiday on our calendars. But often our tendency when we celebrate or we do something over and over and over again, we could lose its true meaning and its significance. Now, having said that, I also want to say that sometimes the opposite is true as well. Sometimes the opposite can be true when it's something we've done over and over again. Sometimes we don't take the time to celebrate maybe the way we really should. Many years ago, my mom and dad were celebrating a significant anniversary. I think, I can't remember if it was their 25th or the 30th year of marriage. And so Michelle and I had only been married maybe, well, less than 10 years for sure at that time. We were over at their place a few days before uh, their, their anniversary date. And I asked them, well, what are they planning to do to celebrate this major milestone? Like I can't remember if it was the 25th or 30th or something like that. Now, I know my parents are not big on, you know, fancy dinners or extravagant events and so on, but I still thought that maybe they would get together and and maybe have a nice dinner together. Maybe walk around downtown Ottawa or along the canal. If any of you have been to Ottawa, you know how beautiful it is in the summertime. So I said, well, what are are your big plans for this big anniversary? Well, it wasn't a fancy dinner. It wasn't a night out on the town dressed up. They said, we're having dinner for two. At Burger King. <laughs> and it gets even better. My dad even, he even pulled out the coupon he was gonna use <laughs> in order for the two of them to go for dinner. Now, I'm not suggesting that my parents were cheap. I mean, they, they, were, they were frugal, I know, but they, they weren't cheap. And it wasn't like that this wasn't a special occasion for them. Like, my parents rarely liked to spend money eating out, unless it was going out for Chinese food. Now, even though they kept a very simple celebration of their anniversary, it wasn't that my parents' love for each other was in question. It wasn't that their you know, 25 or 30 years together meant that their relationship was beginning to wane. I believe that they made less of a celebration because they recognized that the impact and significance in each of their lives stemming from that original choice 25 years ago to be married and to make that commitment to each other had, over time, become more important than the actual date or that ceremony itself. See, the impact of that decision became more important than the actual decision itself. And the celebration, yes, I mean, absolutely the celebration of their wedding day was important. But it was more important how that event actually changed their lives. I remember back in the, uh, the church that we previously ministered in, every, every Valentine's Day we would come, to a couple who had been married several years, and we'd say, oh, what are you doing for Valentine's Day? And their response would always be, well, nothing. Every day is Valentine's Day. <laughs> no, this is where everyone goes, aw. <laughs> are your Easter celebrations and Easter traditions, perhaps even including attending, uh, in, including attending a church service like this one, simply to acknowledge a one-time historical event? Again, I realize that many of us know and understand that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ provides for us the path to a right relationship with God. And if we accept by faith Jesus' sacrifice for our sin and make that decision to receive Christ as both our Savior and Lord of our lives, we can live rightly with him. I'm I'm not minimizing the importance and the significance of that. That is is of utmost importance. But do we understand that the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave marked much more than than just something that we can look forward to in the future? It wasn't something that just happened and there's nothing going on in the here and now until one day when he returns. The resurrection of Jesus actually fundamentally changed all of creation. The resurrection of Jesus Christ has significant impact on all creation and on each one of us, not just our present, or not just our future, excuse me, but our past and our present as well. Let me try to illustrate what I'm trying to say here. How many of you here would be like 30, 35 and older? Just pop your hand up real quick. Yeah. Oh, there's, that's the whole young group there. Yeah, okay. This is going to be tough for you to... Well, anyway, I'm going to speak to you, because here, for those of you who are, I think, about maybe 30 to 35 years old, perhaps the most significant, world-changing event was the attacks on the U.S. of 9-11. Again, there may be some other things that come up, but as I was thinking about this, is that you know, 9-11 was a world-changing event. Most of us, or many of us, will take time to remember that tragedy. But do we often consider what impact that event has had on our lives, even to the present day? Do we think about the ways the world has fundamentally changed because of 9-11? And I'm sure one day, maybe in the near future, three to five years from now, we're going to look back on this pandemic, and we're going to look back at uh, Russia's invasion of the Ukraine, and we're going to see how the world has fundamentally changed, will we'll fundamentally change. But when we look back to 9-11, for those who are younger, you may not realize that the world, and especially air travel, has fundamentally changed since that day. Do you know that before 9-11, you could purchase a plane ticket, and it was cheaper to buy a return ticket than it was to buy a one-way ticket at that time? You could buy a a two-way plane ticket, and if you didn't use the second half, you could put it for sale in the newspaper. And then you could buy an airplane ticket off of somebody that didn't even have your name on it and use it when you got to the ticket counter. Some of you are going like, how could that even possibly be? <laughs> but it's true, you could do that. I remember many times wanting to fly but not able to pay a full price of a ticket and looking online to see if there were any plane tickets for sale. Do you know that before 9-11, they would serve you a full meal on the plane? You always had to fight to get the you know, fish or the beef or the chicken, or whatever. But they would serve it to you with metal utensils And how many times I would pocket those things so I could have some more things. (laughs) I I just made a confession there, I think. (laughs) Do you know that prior to 9-11, you didn't have to take off your belt and your shoes going through the security line? Do you know you didn't always have to even open your luggage? You didn't have to, well, the laptops were almost non-existent, maybe. But I mean, you didn't have to fire up your electronics or, or give them your phone, so on and so forth. Do you know that before 9-11, if you had kids flying with you and they wanted to see the cockpit, you could ask the pilot to open the door and let them sit in the cockpit for a few minutes? Like, I don't, I don't think that hardly even happens anymore. My, my point is this. 9-11 wasn't just an event, even a significant event. It was an event that fundamentally changed the world. And more specifically in this case, it changed the way we traveled by plane. Things were different before 9-11 and things have changed since 9-11. you have your Bibles turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15 12 to 17 and I'll start our message in this passage now we're going to move around scripture quite a bit this morning but let me begin with this passage which I believe presents for us not only the event of the resurrection but the significance of the resurrection what it means for each one of us today now here Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 Paul writes but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sin. Let's take a moment to focus on that last sentence. If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile. You are still in your sins now paul isn't questioning the legitimacy or questioning the truth of the resurrection of jesus christ he knows knows full well it happened it occurred it's 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 a historical fact rather what he is saying to his readers and to us is that if christ didn't rise from the dead then everything we believe everything we've put our faith and our trust in everything we've put our, our hope in everything that jesus claimed to be and claimed to do is false They're lies, and therefore, they're useless. However, if Christ did rise from the dead, then everything we believe in, everything that we put our faith and trust in, everything we put our hope in, everything that Jesus said about himself and what he did is completely true and is therefore of great significance and value. You see... If Jesus did not resurrect, then everyone and everything still exists in the futility of sin. We're still in our sins. But if Jesus did resurrect, then we are free from the futility of sin and we no longer need to live in that futility. And this morning, I want to share with you three areas in which, because of the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which we celebrate this morning, three areas in which we no longer have to live in the futility of sin. Well, first, because of the resurrection of Jesus, we no longer need to live in the futility of our past sinful efforts. See, ever since the beginning of time, humankind has been on this futile attempt to try to gain righteousness or right standing before with God on their own, their own efforts. It has been observed that every other religious and every other belief system in the world believes that rightness with God or whatever they want to call it. So rightness with God or the attainment of this higher state or enlightenment or spiritual fulfillment, you know, this, this you know, achievement of being can be, can be accomplished through human effort. Look it up. Every other religious or faith system in the world believes that it's up to us in order to attain something by what we do. If we follow the right set of rules, if we pray to the right gods in the right way and in the right time, if we observe the right rituals and so on, perhaps even coming to a service once or twice a year. If we can, if we do all of those things, we can somehow achieve our own salvation, whatever salvation means to you. Just this past week I was having a conversation with someone in the foyer. Who, hadn't, uh, who, who I guess wasn't very familiar with the Christian faith and said that he came from a Roman Catholic background, similar to, to what Matt shared with us in his growing up. But he was also very quick to, to, to admit that he wasn't a very good practicing Catholic. And I think what he meant by that was he wasn't very committed to doing the things that Catholics are kind of required to do. Again, if you examine every other religious belief, every other faith system, belief system, even those who would claim to be atheists or agnostic, they all have this one thing in common. Life is about what you do. It's about what you do. You see, in general, we all like to believe that we're basically good people and that if we live this so-called good life, then God will accept us or we'll find fulfillment or, or whatever it may be. But Romans 3 verse 10 tells us very clearly. He says, Paul says, there is no one righteous. There's not even one. No one's righteous. Scripture teaches us clearly, and I think even as we live life itself, we see that relying upon our own works, our own perceived goodness, our own good acts, are completely and utterly futile. While every other belief system in the world, created by mankind, I I might add, says do, Jesus, through his completed work on the cross and his resurrection, says it's done. The book of Isaiah in chapter 64 describes how each of us Uh, how each of us are unclean, and that even our so-called righteous acts, even the things that we do that we think are good, whether that's helping an old lady across the street or giving away all your money to the poor, it doesn't matter any of that. Isaiah 64 says, because we're all unclean, all of these so-called righteous acts are like rags, are like filthy rags. So if you're here this morning, or for those who are listening online, if you believe that Christianity is some kind of religion with rules that we need to follow and things that we need to do, let me tell you that it is not. You see, Christianity is simply a relationship, a relationship that we can have with God through Jesus Christ. And 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 says, God made him who had no sin, talking about Jesus, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The theological term for this principle is called imputed righteousness, and in my view, this is one of the most beautiful things about what we call Christianity. Imagine, if you will, that you're standing before a pure and a holy and a righteous God, and yet the clothes you are wearing are filthy and torn and disheveled and, and, and whatever else you want to, however else you want to describe it. And we stand before God, and God says, I, I can't accept you like that. And so maybe you try to do your best. You, you try to brush some dirt off or you try to you know, scrub some of the stains out and you try to, to, to sew up some of the, the t- rips and tears and you come before God again and says, that's not, that's not acceptable. I, I can't receive you like this. It's still filthy. And then Jesus is standing over here. And because he was sinless and he's dressed in a robe of white representing purity and holiness and righteousness, And he can stand before God because of that. Jesus comes over to you and he takes your filthy, ragged, torn, stained clothes and he takes them off. And he takes his robe of righteousness and he gives it up and he puts it on you. And then he takes what you are wearing and puts it on himself. And at the cross, he takes on our punishment, takes our punishment, and he pays our penalty. So that we now, who are wearing clothes that we don't deserve, we could never earn, we could never create on our own, can stand before a holy and a righteous God and have a right relationship with him. That's what imputed righteousness means. God, Jesus, did it for us. Romans 3 says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith, not to be earned by anything, by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus not those who have accomplished something or lived a certain way. No, I'm lost. Because, <laughs> he did it to demonstrate his righteousness. At the, yeah, it does faith in Jesus. So where then is boasting? What can we brag about? Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. You see, with God, you don't have to nor can you earn anything. God, because of his great love for us, has done it all. Romans 5, verses 1 and then verse 8 says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God, that right relationship with God, through our Lord Jesus Christ. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, we don't need to live in this futile, I have to do something to earn favor with God mentality. Because salvation is a gift from God. Ephesians 2 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. It is futile to try to earn your standing before God because it is impossible. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, we no longer need to live in the futility of our past sinful efforts. Second, because of the resurrection of Jesus, we no longer need to live in the futility of our future sinful destiny. Now, there's really only two truths or two options when it comes to what happens to each and every one of us when we physically die. We either spend our eternity in the presence of God where we spend our eternity apart from God. Now, I know that many beliefs and philosophies of man speculate on a third or fourth option, which means that maybe something nothing happens, or uh, uh, that we are reincarnated as someone or something else. But scripture is clear. There's only two options. Hebrews 9.27 tells us that people are destined to die but once, and after that to face the judgment. Because of our sinful, nature, our sinful nature, excuse me that nature that we inherited through the original sin of Adam and Eve, we are all doomed to a sinful, future destiny apart from God. The Bible describes it as a place of eternal torment, originally created for Satan and his demons. However, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, if we make the choice to put our faith in him and to follow his ways, we are no longer condemned to that fate. 1 John 5:11 and 12 says, and this is a testimony. God has given us, gifted us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And a verse that may be familiar to, to most of you or many of you is John 3:16: 16. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life because jesus himself defeated death we no longer need to fear death but we can rest assured in the fact that those in christ will be with christ for an eternity either when we die or when he returns acts chapter 2 says jesus of nazareth nazareth was a man accredited by god to you by miracles wonders and signs which god did among you through him as you yourselves know this man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him on the cross. But, but, God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, and, uh, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And then Paul proclaims victoriously in 1 Corinthians 15, in the resurrection scheme of day things, this has to happen. Everything perishable, taken off the shelves and replaced by the imperishable. The mortal replaced by the immortal. Then the saying will come true, death swallowed by triumphant life. Who got the last word, O death? O death, who's afraid of you now? Some translation is death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? Because it is no more because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then Paul goes on to say, it was sin, it was sin, the futility of sin that made death so frightening and law-code guilt that gave sin its leverage, its destructive power. But now in a single victorious stroke of life, all three, sin, guilt, death, are gone. The gift of our master, Jesus Christ, thank God. Our faith and trust in Jesus Christ And his resurrection gives us both the confidence and the assurance of an eternity with him. And because of that, there is no fear of death and no uncertainty about what lies beyond this physical life. You know, every culture and every time have had kind of basically two kind of questions that I think you'll find in in, in any culture, any place. And they're simply this. What is the meaning of life? and What happens when we die? And both of those questions were answered when Jesus rose from the dead on Easter Sunday morning. I remember my mom recounting the story of when she received that very difficult diagnosis of lung cancer. My mom and dad had been planning to work, they, they, had, they were planning to move from Toronto to Calgary, and in the months of November, December, my mom had worked very hard to get things packed up and to make the arrangements. And they arrived in Calgary in January, and my mom was not feeling very well. And at the time, she attributed it to the, the busyness and the physical you know, strain on her from the move. Um, at that time of year, sometimes she gets a little bit of bronchitis, uh, or pneumonia, and uh, so she thought that, that that's what was going on. But things weren't getting any better, so she went to the doctor, and the doctor said, well, we need to run some tests. So, okay, that's fine, they didn't, you know, didn't think anything of it of course, several days later, or a week later, she got the phone call from the doctor. She said, I think you need to come in, and we need to talk. And you know when the doctor wants to see you in person, it's usually not always good news, never, never really good news. My mom sat in that doctor's office, she told me, and the doctor was very hesitant to say what she had, needed to say. And finally my mom said to her, I think it was a female doctor, I think, um, my mom finally said to her, "He said, just, just tell me, whatever it is, it's okay. Then she received the diagnosis of lung cancer. But my mom tells me with confidence, told me with confidence that she wasn't scared of whatever the doctor might have said because she was secure in her future destiny. She knew what awaited her because she had put her trust in Jesus Christ many years earlier. It wasn't easy. Don't get me wrong. It wasn't like it was an easy It wasn't a piece of easy news to hear. But my mom experienced this supernatural peace the whole time, not only when she received the news, but the whole time she was sick, simply because of her faith in Jesus Christ and her assurance of eternity. In fact, I would even suggest that as my mom's health began to deteriorate and she passed away about a year and a half after that diagnosis, that she was actually looking forward to being with Jesus and being free from this physical burden. Uh, pain and, the, and the, the disease that she had. but Because of the resurrection of Jesus, we no longer need to live in the futility of our sinful future destiny. Finally, because of the resurrection of Jesus, we no longer have to live in the futility of our sinful present identity. Identity in the most simplest way is just who we are. One definition said, and a bit of an older definition said, Identity is the fact of being uh, so yeah the fact of being who or what a person or a thing is so let 's just live it to us as humans okay the fact of being who uh, uh, who we are so because identity is fundamental to us as human beings, it, it forms the the baseline of what we think, how we think, what we believe, what our worldviews are, how we interact with others what we uh, what we believe about ourselves, what we believe about the world, and how we behave. However, because of sin, identity becomes not the fact of who you are, rather becomes a perception of who you think you are. A more modern psychological de- definition, I think, contrasts. This. Now, remember, if I go back, an older definition says that the, the identity is the fact of being who a person is. But a more modern definition says an individual sense of who they are. It's become much more subjective. You see, each of us as human beings have have some base needs. We all need to be loved by others and to love others. We all have a need to in some way somehow be significant. We We want to make a difference. We want to know that our lives are making a difference. We want to have power and be in control of our lives. We have this kind of autonomous drive in us. So our identities then become shaped by our perception and our experiences on how these needs are or they're not met. Some of you may be familiar with uh, a concept called attachment theory. And basically it says that a child right from birth needs to develop a strong and healthy relationship with at least one primary caregiver, especially in the areas of love, protection, and provision. If a child develops a healthy attachment, that means a sense positive uh they have a positive experience with love and provision and protection then they are much more likely to grow up with a strong and confident sense and belief about who they are about others and the world around them if they don't develop a healthy uh this healthy attachment that means they're they're raised in an environment that doesn't have that didn't doesn't have a healthy sense of of love and provision and protection then they are much more likely then to develop negative traits things like being uh being more insecure or uncertain about life, or anxious, or even fearful about who they are or the motives of others and fearful of the world around them. So from that identity, individuals will seek other ways, often unhealthy ways, to fulfill those basic needs. This is the futility of a personal, subjective view and understanding and belief about our identity. You might believe that you are unworthy of love. You might believe that you have little to offer this world and you have little to give to it. You might believe that life is about attaining everything you can while you can. You might believe that exercising force and oppressing others or suppressing others is the only way to attain and gain power. But the truth is, we're not who we think we are. We need to grow in our identity and belief and practice of who God says we are. Because God is the one who created us. And it is only from God that we can truly understand who we are, not a a perception of who we think we are, which is often shaped by so many negative factors. John says this in 1 John 3, verses 19 to 20. This is a fascinating verse. John says, This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. So this is how we know that we are in Christ. And how we can live kind of in that peace. If our hearts condemn us, so if our hearts say something to us that is negative, we know that God is greater than our hearts and He knows everything. You see, there are times when even our own hearts, our own subjective hearts, will tell us something and make us believe something about who we are that is simply not true. But God is greater than our hearts, God is greater than even what we believe about ourselves. And because of his resurrection and the resurrection of Jesus, we no longer have to live in the futility of our present sinful identity. We don't need to shape our identity by what what we think of ourselves or by what other things of ourselves or by what the world or society defines us to be. Let me just read a few verses of Scripture that speak not subjectively to who we might think we are, but objectively to the truth of 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 who God says we are. And maybe one of these truths is what you need to hear this morning. Genesis 127, right from the beginning, he said, God created, he says man, but I'm going to use the word you, God created you in his own image. In the image of God, he created you. You're not defined by the clothes you wear, by what society or others say about you. Psalm 139, verse 14, I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. You know that expression, God don't make no junk? That applies to each and every one of us. There are times that we feel worthless, valueless. God says, I created you. That's where your worth comes from. Not what you accomplish, not what you do, but because I made you. John 1.12 says, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. I love Matthew's testimony and how in his experience, because his parents divorced and, and he was without a father, how he came to God with a longing for a father. Each of us are called children of God. We're part of his family. We have a relationship with him. John 15, verse 15 says, "I, Jesus speaking, says, Jesus, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. And sometimes we live in this fear of our relationship with Jesus that, you know, he's just our, our God, that he's just the, you know, kind of that cosmic, cosmic being that is looking to punish us. And every time we do something wrong and Jesus says, no, no, you're my friends. Ephesians 2 verse 10 For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So when our behaviors, our choices, our priorities stemming from identity come, God created a plan for you. And we only find our full satisfaction and joy in life when we commit ourselves to following God's plan for our lives, not when we pursue our own, uh, our own goals and objectives. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. I don't know how many times I've heard people come to me with their story and saying, God could never love me because I've done this in my past, or I have too much of this, or I fell into this pattern of behavior, or whatever else. It, it, it's all made new. Now, there are many, many more verses, maybe over this. Easter break, you can take time just to examine the Scripture, the truth of Scripture that says who that that, that defines for us who we are, and not just rely upon ourselves or our own perception, or our own interpretations or what the world is telling us. Knowing who we are, knowing who we truly are, forms the foundation of what we think and believe about ourselves, how we relate to others, to the world. It drives our choices and actions and uh, 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 everything. And because of the resurrection of jesus we no longer have to live in the futility of our present sinful identity pastor chet worship team coming up you have a few things to set up here behind me as we get closing here i go back to this that easter was not just a historical event the death and resurrection of jesus christ fundamentally changed the world forever because of the res- resurrection of jesus we no longer have to live in the futility of our sin. We no longer have to live in the futility of our past sinful efforts, thinking we can earn our way to heaven and make ourselves right before God. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we no longer have to live in the futility of our future sinful destiny. We can be absolutely assured that one day when Christ returns or one day when we pass, we will be with him. And because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we no longer have to live in the present in the futility of our sinful identity that we are who God says we are. If you ask me, that's something we're celebrating. The Easter changes everything. As Pastor Chet and the worship team lead us in a couple songs to close, we want to open up the altar here at the front corners of the worship center. And if God has spoken to your heart and you need to respond in some way and prayer could be one of those ways, I I would encourage and even challenge you to do so. You see, maybe you've never made that commitment to follow Jesus Christ, to receive his gift of salvation and you're living believing that you can earn righteousness in your own way and you keep doing and Jesus says, it's done. And maybe that's the first step you need to make is to make a decision to follow Christ and you want to come forward and just pray with somebody about that. Maybe you've, never, you've, you've this morning recognized other ways that your life pursuits have been futile. You're recognizing the futility of the choices you made and the path that you've chosen, and you want to realign your life to God's way and to God's purposes. If you want to come forward and pray with someone and share that with someone. We'd love to do that with you. Or perhaps you simply need to live in the truth of who you are, that for too long you've allowed your own thoughts or others around you or the society around you, your friends, whatever it may be, to define who you are, And simply you need to come forward and say, God, I am who you say I am. And begin living in that reality. Of course, if you know of a need around you, you know that you can move around in this worship center and go over to somebody you know who may be hurting or have a need and you can pray with them as well. So as we sing these last couple songs, take time to respond. If there are needs around you that you can respond to, then take time to do that as well as we minister to one another in prayer. Pastor Chet, we stand? Yeah, let's stand together. Pastor Chet will lead us in a couple closing songs. Well, thank you for listening. Don't forget to check out our church website at ebenezerbaptist.ca. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can let us know by clicking like and by subscribing to our podcast channel. God bless you, and thanks for listening.